Randy Tobler back with you for the second hour of the Tobler Show. We're just going to let Earth, Wind, and Fire play for the whole segment. Okay. We're not going to do that. Leah knows how to get me going on a Saturday morning with some Earth, Wind, and Fire. Takes me back to the disco days. Someone sent me a picture the other day of myself playing with the Bob Cuban brass on the Admiral. Do you know, Leah, have you ever heard of the Admiral? Do you know about the Admiral? I don't. It was an old barge that back in the, well, the back in the day, 30s, 40s, I don't know, they turned it into a dance ship, or maybe 50s. Oh, cool. And it was, a, it was one of these steel hold vessels. It was steel, all steel. And there were bands on three decks playing. Oh. Well, actually, two decks, yeah. We were on the main floor, the Bob Cuban Brass, and then upstairs was a rock band. And it would go for evening cruises down from the riverfront, right at the arch. And it would go, you know, on, the, on Mississippi for, what, a four-hour cruise? And those were my dates with oh, you. Those were I got dates. to watch him on the bandstand. Aww, that's awesome. Those were, those were my dates. And my groupie. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was among the first groupies, yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, we played Earth, Wind, and Fire. We played, you know, Blood, Sweat, and Tears and a lot of that stuff. So Leah patronizes me with, uh, with uh, nostalgia from back in the day. I had the bell bottoms with the platform mm-hmm. shoes, the silk Uh-oh. shirt. Yeah. Do you have pictures? I do. Yes. Yeah. And if I showed them to you, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, Bob uh, Bob wrote a book several years ago. I think I was quoted in it, or at least I told the story or two. Um, I think from my side of the bandstand, it was called or something. But anyway, those were the days. At any rate, uh, and you know what? Uh, we all got paid the same, at least as far as I know, because we were all, you know, in the band and... Union wage. Union wages and all that. Okay. Uh, and there's a loose, the, the union, the, the musicians union in St. Louis is not a strong union. I think the symphony guys are probably in the guys that play at the Fox and the Muni. And I played at the Fox and the Muni for a while. At any rate, there's this interesting story out of the Wall Street Journal. And I'm just interested, uh, before we move on to talking to Aaron Headland uh, from Show Me Institute at the 725 block. And then in the last block of this hour, we'll be talking with Virginia Cruda. And later on, Jimmy Fela, 8 o'clock. You see him on Fox, and of course hear him on News Talk STL here at noon on the 94.1 frequency, and then overnight from 12 to 1 on uh, both frequencies. He'll be on with us, and then Chris Arps uh, at 825. So uh, we're saving our very best for la- uh, in the last one. It comes to Chris Arps because he told me to say that. No, he didn't. He did not. I love talking to Chris. And I always he's feel, awesome. I always feel um, privileged to talk to Chris because he's on Newsmax like every yeah. Thursday. Pretty cool. That's pretty cool. The people, I mean, you know, and Tim is former Speaker of the House. We've got mm-hmm. all the celebrities on this on this station. It's really great. So at any rate, uh, what do you? What are your thoughts about knowing what other people make at your workplace? You know, I think it's for a long time been considered taboo, but younger generations seem to be more comfortable with sharing what they make, and in fact, some states have enacted regulations that say there's going to be transparency in pay across everything. Well, it's an interesting story here in the Wall Street Journal from uh, a couple weeks ago. And they discovered that there was a telling lesson, sociologic lesson about what happens when people go from not knowing what each other make to when they do. And it comes out of the hockey league experience back in the NHL, back in the 1990s. There was an abrupt release. It was going to be made public anyway, what all the hockey players made. Now, we, we know, now we know contracts are very public, of course, in all the leagues. But at that time, it wasn't. And then it became, uh, the Montreal Gazette, I guess, broke the story before it became official through the league. 
and it, and it and it found out that they found out that the defensemen were making less than the offensive players. And so my wife brought this to me because you used to work in a place where you were. You I was the payroll, payroll yeah. accountant. Yeah, we won't mention the name of the company. No, we but, don't have to. Yeah. I don't even know if they're around and, anymore. And how did that affect you? Knowing. Uh, oh my goodness! There was a sea of us in, the, in those days. A sea of of, of us in the yeah. same big, huge room. And like I, sitting in your cubicles. Yeah. I knew what I was doing. I was working my backside off, mm-hmm. getting you know, working hard for the money. Yeah. And I look, I look, and I look to my left, and yeah. this gal making came out of college the same time I did. So y'all same seniority. Same seniority. Same job. Description. Making a thousand more than me, and she talked all. Day, I was so mad at her. Why do you her. think she made more than you? Because she was a tax accountant, which I wanted to be. First of all, that there's that that competition. I didn't yeah. make that. The job that I interviewed for was a payroll accountant. Tax accountant wasn't open at the time. But you were both doing accounting. We work. We were both right? doing accounting work. But mm. there is there. I can't say anything positive <laughs> about knowing what somebody makes. Yet the the young crowd, our kids, they talk about it. Everybody seems to know what she might everybody be listening. Makes. It's okay. <laughs> oh, so but what happened in the hockey league? This is fascinating. So the defensemen found out that the offensive guys were making more. Mm-hmm. Now they're the flashy players, right? They get all the they get all the headlines, right? Yeah, he scored the hat trick. Okay, and I think we still do appreciate an offensive defenseman who can be, play great defense and, and, and score a goal or three. You know, that's great. But it turned out that a, 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 a researcher did a study to follow up what happened after that knowledge. And lo and behold, these guys started scoring more goals. The defensive guys started scoring more goals because they connected. It was a Skinner. Wasn't that B.F. Skinner? That, right, like, right, right. Uh, the reward, you know, operant. Condi- Correct. Okay. And so um, they started, well, okay, if goal scoring is what gets you more bucks, I'm going to score more goals. The problem is when they were on the ice, the other team scored more goals than they were scoring. Right. They weren't de- because their the defense they should have. Yeah, their defense lagged. So their job performance changed. Right. And the team went down. And the down. team suffered. Right. Okay. Right. So now you analogize that to your own situation. Okay. And this is where I can tell you some medical stories. I don't you don't want to hear the medical analogy of this because it's it's happening it's real it's true which is why i'm not a part of turnstile medicine anymore Mm -hmm. but um let's see what would this be okay let's state producer leah okay the producer's job is to book guests um do the board op uh, provide um, entertainment during the show make sure while she's listening if there's something if there's a news clip that sounds like it would fit with a guest or something you know hey why don't we do this that being involved with making the show interesting and providing good guests, and we work together on that. Okay. Well, if if it was found that people that work at, at a radio station that um, come up with the most uh, the funniest bits and produce the funniest bits get paid more, all of a sudden the other production values would go down. Mm-hmm. Looking for interesting guests wouldn't happen. Uh, doing a good job in the it would be like you'd spend all your time producing bits, right? And that's a little bit of a of a weak analogy, but I mean, look at your a salesman. A salesperson may suddenly become, and they talk about this in article. This, if if uh, you know if the number of sales are the if commission was directly related to the amount of you know the 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 instant sale rather than the long term customer, that's probably not good for the long term benefit no. of the company. No. Although it may look flashy on the spreadsheet to show, oh, I made 50 sales. They were only for 
20, you know, 20 uh, units a piece. I'd rather have two customers that give me 20 units a piece an order for two years. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Rather than short. So I'm not sure. I, I don't see any advantage to transparency, especially mm-hmm. when it's mandated. You know, because there's, I guess the argument that they're using, the woke culture and the social justice culture is saying, well, it's it's generally used as an argument to try to address the alleged pay gap between women and men. That's where this whole movement got started. Um, where they say, like California, you have to you have to post the, the the pay range for a given job. You know, it's mandatory. Well, at least it's a range, and it's not a particular dollar amount. You know, that's good. Does that leave some subjectivity? I think the employer ought to be able to pay someone who whatever they want to pay someone. I mean, as long as we live in a free country, I mean, you can opt to go somewhere else and try to get some work for more somewhere else if you want. When you were in your position of leadership at yeah. the hospital. Tell me, yeah, what the what a lot of young the young pups coming right out of medical school. Yeah, tell me what they did. Used what to, are the first questions? Now, used to frost go, me. go the way 10, 15 years ago to now. Go, well, just give a, an, an analogy. I, I think most of us who have been on the earth a little bit longer than producer Leah uh, would know that when you applied for a job or when you were interviewing people for a job, if you're now in a leadership position, it you always want to have someone who's interested in. Well, tell me about the job, and here's what I can do for you, dear employer or prospective employer. And um, tell me about some of your benefits and what's about the culture, what's your philosophy, and, you know, what are some of the exciting things that you have a vision for your company? And then, of course, that becomes a great part of the interview. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what I can contribute, you know. And it, and then you the money part comes least. Right. A lot of the young doctors coming out of training, the very first thing is, do you repay loans? What's the pay? It's how much very, vacation time? How much vacation time? <laughs> Those are the first <laughs> yeah. questions. And that's fine. Those are good, legitimate questions. And we live in a capitalistic society. And if your commodity is radio production or doctoring or, you know, whatever you do, uh, you know, machinist, whatever you do, that's obviously that's in everyone's mind. That's an, that's that goes without saying. But it sends a bad message that you're just sort of mercenary, right? That you're just interested in. Uh, there's. I think it's good for the human soul to be productive and to feel like there's meaning in life and there's fine meaning by doing a good job at what you do. And yeah, the as pay, Leah is. And oh, Leah, yeah. As Leah yeah. is. Yeah, I love yes. this job. Yeah, I know yes. you, you do. Never take it for granted. And it speaks, and you can tell that because you're enthusiastic about it. And, and almost always, in my experience, sooner or later, that translates to material returns. You may not get it in the present job where you're you're just busting a gut to get everything done and doing it, doing it, doing it. You're just and you just don't get recognized. Okay, don't worry. You will sooner or later get recognized, right? I mean right, if you're absolutely. if you're not getting recognized where you're at, go somewhere else. Right. Because if you continue to do the right thing, you will get recognized. Right. And yeah, you can get bitter over people that are butt kissers and you know, and whatever. You know, I get that. Those are those people are everywhere. But eventually production, engagement enthusiasm wins the day and making mm-hmm. yeah and make and making a difference for the company and therefore for the company's customers that's always going to be and if you're working for a boss that doesn't recognize that you don't want to be working for that boss it's that simple i used to get in trouble in leadership because uh, you know how uh, favoritism is always in employee surveys mm-hmm. oh there's favoritism there's favoritism and i used to say yeah i have my favorites if you stay late <laughs> if you always say yes if i if I see you working on a weekend and you're working the rest of the time, yeah, yeah, I guess that's a, what you a, call a favorite. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. What else are you going to say? And they're not just putting in time. They're actually no, doing that's work. Right. Yeah, and there are people, and you know when people they're not are just, just they're not making, just making the appearance, mm-hmm. right? There are people that can look busy, you know. But but I think bosses of successful companies know who are producing the goods and who aren't. They know that. And mm-hmm. why wouldn't they want to reward people? Why Why would there be bias? I don't happen to like looking at blue hair. I don't happen to like looking at nose rings and facial jewelry. But if someone with blue hair and nose ring and facial jewelry was the best whatever I need with my company, you're hired and you're going to do well. Unless I'm catering to people that really will not come to my company for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, then we're going to have a discussion. You know what I mean? It's just why would you discriminate against anyone and why wouldn't you pay them well if they're bringing return to the company? It doesn't make logical sense. That's just my two cents worth. What do I know? Aaron Hedlund's going to come and uh, talk to us about this, and I'll bet he would agree with me that if we let the free market reign, not only in, you know, goods and services and from that side of the fence, but in the labor market, he'd probably agree things are going to work out well. I don't know. That's, that's, that we'll see what he says. Maybe we'll bring that up and see. We'll ask him about Kanye, too. No, that wasn't on the agenda. <laughs> Aaron Hudland is the chief economist at Show Me Institute, joins us right around the corner on the Randy Tobler Show. Here on Saturday morning, it's 719, heading towards 720. Another cup of joe on your list? Mine, too. Oh, here, let me, yeah, I'm going to get ready to play I want to play it here. Welcome back to the program, 725, and we always look forward to our conversation with Aaron Hedlund. Dr. Hedlund is the chief economist at Show Me Institute. How are you doing, Aaron? Thank you for calling this, calling in this morning. Uh, sorry to get you up so early. Oh, no problem. It's a nice morning looking outside at the fall leaves. and Great to talk with you. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I wanted you to listen to a clip from... Uh, Leader Joe the other day and get your reaction to this after the abysmal CPI numbers came out. He's always so reassuring. Take a listen. Oh, Republicans are going to make you working middle class folks pay higher taxes than the biggest corporations. And by the way, in every single piece of legislation I've gotten passed with help of the people here, we have not raised the tax on anybody making less than 400,000 bucks a year, one penny. I wish I was making 400, you were making 400 grand, but not a single penny. No, I mean it, not a single penny. Republican wins, inflation is going to get worse. It's that simple. So, uh, boy, I tell you, there's the pot calling the kettle black, huh, Aaron Hedlund? I mean, he's, uh, he's, he's, he ran on an inflation agenda. He says he sleeps and thinks, and that's all he concentrates on every day. And this transitory inflation appears to be pretty entrenched, doesn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. So first of all, the average worker now has paid over nearly a $3,000 inflation tax because of rising prices. And as we just discovered a couple of days ago, inflation is still over 8%. And the core inflation number, which is kind of a, a, kind of a subcomponent of it that the Federal Reserve pays attention to, keeps going up. So there's really no sign of relief yet. And... 
I, like you said, the core inflation rate, I mean, when you strip out the volatile gas and and food, you know, indices, I mean, it, it really appears to be, there's no stopping it. I mean, it's it's just a, a leviathan that just keeps rolling on. Um, and it, I have to ask you about the psychology of inflation now, because it happened to me the other day. I actually got caught in what I think is now maybe becoming a dangerous thing. And you as an economist, tell me if I'm right or wrong. So the other day, I okay, I drive a diesel truck. And I'd heard that prices were heading up, you know, a couple weeks ago. I didn't fill up. I was busy. Uh, But then I started filling up at half tank because I figured, well, wait a minute, it's going to be higher next week. And I know I'm going to, I have to have diesel, just like people have to have food. They have to put clothes on their children. So I felt like I was contributing to the demand because of the anticipation of inflation going up. It, it's it's in my psychology now. Could this be something that could lock inflation in over the long term? Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's why the Federal Reserve is probably most worried about what they, what they would call inflation expectations becoming entrenched. So you know, early on in, in this whole episode, you, you heard transitory, 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 which was clearly wishful thinking. And uh, the thought was, well, as, as long as people don't come to expect that inflation will remain this high, then we're kind of okay. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out people are expecting inflation to stay higher, and the concern is what if those really become entrenched? So that's why the Federal Reserve, they relate to the party, but now they're being much more aggressive in terms of raising rates. Unfortunately, they're playing a tug-of-war game with the White House and Congress. The Federal Reserve is doing things to tame inflation, at the same time, the rest of the government is doing things to stoke inflation through more spending and tax hikes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, since Biden's come in, okay, so let's see, the American Rescue Plan, then the Infrastructure Act, then CHIPS, then the Inflation Reduction, what a misnomer, uh, act. I mean, it's what, was it $3 billion, $4 billion? I mean, it's been tremendous amount of spending. Without really the identified need, I mean, the economy was already, you know, heading back to, to, you know, some degree of normalcy in the in the late winter, early spring of last year. And I mean, it just doesn't seem like that spending was necessary, especially at a time when, you know, supply chains and inventories were down as a result of COVID as well. It just seems like disastrous uh, fiscal management. No. Absolutely. This is really an ideologically driven agenda. This is not based on economic necessity. And look, I'm a data person. So when I look at inflation in, let's say, January 2021, below 2%, February 2021, pretty much the same thing. March 2021, that's when they passed the $2 trillion stimulus bill, which was completely unnecessary because by that point, GDP was back on track. Unemployment was rapidly falling. Why did we need a stimulus bill? And it was really right after that passage when you start to see inflation dramatically go up. And, of course, you know, now it's at basically 40-year highs. And, and then all these things are packaged in labels that are completely the opposite of what they do, like the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, it's, it's as if they think they can confuse the American public just with the labeling. But we all know when, when, when food prices are going up at the fastest pace since 1979, you know, no amount of spin is going to uh, cause people to not notice that. You know, I read the other day that um, a survey said that roughly 30, roughly a third of people had delayed 
a, uh, a, a payment on a bill. And that another statistic talked about utility bills. They anticipated that utility bills uh, being uh, delayed, uh, you know, this winter was going to probably be the highest in maybe history. I mean, it was, in t- it, was, it, was a, it was a tremendously worrisome number. Um, what, is that, what does that tell you about where we're headed with this economy? And what in the world can people do to try to buffer the impact of what appears to be just a steamrolling inflation that, I mean, because even if they raise the rates, this isn't going to have an immediate impact, is it? Let's say they went up a percent just theoretically in the next two cycles, you know, before the end of the year. Would that still, I mean, would that be felt as an immediate decrease in prices or even deflationary? Or would it just slow the momentum of inflation? Yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely right that people are basically being hurt by this. And in fact, the whole line about people under $400,000 not getting a tax hike, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of our of our chat here, the average worker has already paid a $3,000 inflation tax. Mm-hmm. And frankly, inflation, the burden of it, falls disproportionately on low-income people who are going to be in financial distress and may not be able to pay all their bills. And then you, you wonder about you know what kind of economic problems that could create. And we already saw the first half of the year, GDP shrank two quarters in a row. And really, there's a lot of economic headwinds we're facing. Uh, now, as far as the rate hikes, there, there's some – they don't have an immediate impact on inflation. Now, they do have a pretty rapid impact on the housing market, as we're now seeing. I mean, mortgage rates are 7%, and that's really, really slowing down. House price growth may even go negative. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is we're not even able to feel the full effects of the painful medicine because – on the one hand, the Fed is doing this to tame inflation, but on the other hand, the rest of the government is doing things that make inflation go higher. So we're working at cross purposes here until something changes on the fiscal policy front. Okay. Okay, so we talked about the psychology of inflation, inflation expectation, and that how that can just drive it intrinsically um, with a vicious cycle. What about when when the Fed keeps raising to the point where it does slow down consumer demand, which slows down prices? That's also going to slow down businesses' ability to keep people hired. <laughs> and then when people lose their jobs, will there be a hue and a cry and some kind of a political um, a political momentum for the the good people up uh, from? Uh, heaven in D.C. to drop their manna down with another stimulus, and that'll drive more inflation. I mean, I can see that happening when we're deep in a recession, you know? This is the real danger. This is the real danger that the Fed takes actions that then the rest of the government essentially undoes. Ah. And, and of course, the Fed raising rates, that is a painful way of dealing with inflation. I mean, what would be far better would be for Congress and the White House to basically pass a pro-supply-side agenda. Because if you think about inflation as too much money chasing too few goods, what that means is we need less artificial money entering the economy and more goods. So when we think about labor shortages, the labor shortages are themselves a source of inflation. Mm. So the more that we can get people back to work and make it easier for businesses to hire – the more that businesses can service existing demand without having to raise prices. Yeah, but yet a lot of the, I mean, you know, the president, while he talks about the pandemic being over in certain interviews, he's taking actions that extend pandemic-related benefits. Um, you know, uh, like, uh, I think, isn't the moratorium on rent still going on? And uh, other things that, that still are a result of that. 
So people have expectations that they're, they don't really have to go back to work. That's the anomaly here. Despite, I, I would think that the money that people got during the pandemic should be running out now, especially with, and running out faster with inflation the way it is. So if people are paycheck to paycheck and they need more money to pay their bills, how, why aren't people returning to work? We saw a, another decrease in the labor participation force last week. Uh, you know, week before last. What? Why is that? What's that phenomenon? That that seems new to me, Aaron Headland. Yeah, this is something I feared, which is that even once the unemployment benefits, the, the sort of benefits on steroids, even mm-hmm. once those expired, that there would not be kind of an immediate return to normal. It, it sort of creates this kind of long-term scarring effect. Mm-hmm. And I would say there's a couple reasons for that. One is still somewhat temporary and, and may go away, which is that people are sitting on thousands and thousands of dollars of government money, mm-hmm. and that sort of enables them to not immediately go back to work. But of course, over time, as that pile of money shrinks and shrinks, hopefully they do go back. But the more damaging prospect is that if, if you've been out of work for many, many months or at this point over a year, that also makes you less employable. Mm-hmm. So that's going to make it harder to get hired to begin with. And then, and then, of course, the last piece is that you had people who decided to retire early, yeah, yeah. and they may not come back. Except for now, I guess they're seeing their nest eggs shrink because <laughs> yeah. of the you know the market's not doing so great. So maybe that will bring them back. In. Oh, but hey, they just got an eight point seven percent raise in their social security. That's what the administration. That's the headline administration news from the other day. Look at this. You got you got an eight point seven percent raise, and on your Part B Medicare, you're getting a little decrease in the premiums. I mean, come on, we're in the money. It's like the you know roaring twenties again, right? Yeah, completely clueless. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, all that does is, I guess that's a statutory thing where they have to keep up with the the cost of living, right, when it comes to raising the Social Security benefits, which, um, I mean, but that's a a canard because that's all eaten up with inflation after all. So it really doesn't leave people with any discretionary money. Um, And, you know, the other thing that we haven't talked about is as a result of the hysterical lockdowns that went on, and the difficulty with hiring people for those businesses who were able to keep going or as they emerged from the lockdowns, you know, people for the reasons you enumerated didn't want to go back to work. That that magical, you know, uh, shrine of a $15 minimum wage, it sort of became reality thanks to pandemic, right? And the lockdowns and and tightness in the labor market. So now that's another source of inflation because it's costing a lot more for producers to produce what they produce, Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, businesses now to hire workers have to post a lot more job ads and at much higher wages than they were doing before. Mm-hmm. Now, and if economic productivity were going up, then that wouldn't be a problem. They'd be able to pay the higher wage out of their higher productivity. The problem is this year we've had some of the worst productivity numbers in the data ever. Why? So, well, because basically they're having to you fewer workers. I mean, they're, they're, just, the production is down. Oh, I see. Just because we don't have the workers to do the work. Okay. It's not because right. of lazy workers. No, no, oh. it's not. It's not lazy workers. Oh, okay. We're basically producing fewer things. Now, mm-hmm. there are probably some concerns about, you know, how effective is remote work, mm-hmm. work from home mm-hmm. going to be. I think there's probably some ways that that'll be positive, but I think some businesses are finding that it's not always as efficient to have people working from home because you can't can't monitor what they're doing and yeah. Um, yeah. So productivity was down. I interrupted you there. So what does that translate to then? 
Well, so what that translates to is if businesses have to pay workers more, but they don't have the productivity to go with it, mm-hmm. then the only way they can afford to do it is by raising prices. Yeah, right. And we saw the other day, I saw a Fox Business report where restaurants are adding surcharges for wellness benefits mm-hmm. because that's what they're needing to do to attract. And uh, what was the other surcharge? There was another surcharge on there for health benefits, you know, because they're having to expand benefits that, you know, if you're a small, if you own a, a greasy spoon, you know, with, with, you know, a few cooks and a mm-hmm. dishwasher and a few servers, you know, you may not have offered benefits before, but now you got to hop on that very expensive, you know, health insurance train. And someone's got to pay for it, so the customer ends up paying for it. I mean, one way or another, this thing is not working out well. So, okay, so you were uh, at the Council of Economic Advisors. You were the White House, a former White House Chief of Domestic Economist. If you were advising a, a receptive president, so that would not be President Biden, what would be the least painful way to emerge most quickly from this mess that we're in? Yeah, well, I'd say a couple things. So first of all, let's talk energy. Unfortunately, the the current philosophy with energy is to make it harder for producers to make stuff, to make energy, and to instead kind of send government dollars just to green energy. I'd flip the script on that. I'd say we need to go back to an all-of-the-above across-the-board energy strategy to, first of all, take us away from, you know, we don't have to, te- we don't have to depend on OPEC. We don't have to go begging Venezuela. We, we should be producing on our own. And that would help kind of stabilize and bring energy prices down and take away the threat of going back to $5 a gallon gas. Uh, secondly, I would say now is the time for spending discipline. We need to stop overspending because that's adding fuel to the fire. So we should communicate right away that we're going to be Cutting spending, you know, we're going to be holding certain spending flat. And then also tax hikes. We need to stop it. Stop talking about it. Stop passing it. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act included tax hikes on, on businesses, which are going to discourage investment and hiring. So we need to instead move the opposite direction, which is to basically go for making the Tax Cut and Jobs Act from 2017, make that permanent, mm-hmm. create some certainty so that businesses will invest and expand. And also, of course, keep the tax burden low on on workers. So we really need a supply-side agenda, Mm -hmm. anything we can do to encourage production and work. Art Laffer, right? Basically, the Laffer curve. Um, Yeah, well, you know, but they're going to want to tax the fat cats more and more and more. You know how that's going to play out. And I think that's not going to work out well in these midterms, for sure. But you're right. Joe Biden has taken the magic arrow in his quiver out of his quiver, which is drill, baby, drill, right? I mean, the answer is simple, but that's just not even an option. You're right, Aaron. I mean, that, and isn't that sad? Because the answer's right there in front of him, and he just doesn't see it. Just doesn't see it. Well, okay, so there's the prescription from Dr. Aaron Hedlund, uh, chief economist at Show Me Institute. You can read what he writes and all the great things going on at Show Me institute.org and we always enjoy your analysis it's so crisp and it makes so much sense which is why of course the white house is not adopting it (laughs) okay (laughs) thanks aaron have a great weekend appreciated you being with us thanks you too thanks for having me on all right there he is it always makes so much sense when you hear it put that way it's like duh you know got it well we'll check in with virginia cruda see what's going on in her world of course a prolific writer and columnist with the daily wire and frequently heard here on news talk stl it is 1019-941 News Talk STL. I'm Randy Tobler along with Leah and sitting in today. Helene's there. Got a microphone too, my lovely wife, who's put up with me for 41 years. Is that right? God, how could you do that? We'll be back with more after this. I spent a long time in the dark. Felt good saying good.
Waking up to a brand new heart. Well, what happens if one of them gets out and does something horribly it be, wrong? It would, first and foremost, it would be uh, catastrophic and, and be personally devastating if if somebody hurt somebody. Uh, that, that, that There's always that possibility theoretically. Well, that was John Fetterman making no sense when asked what his policy on releasing criminals out into the public second-degree murders. Everyone, you know, pretty much in Pennsylvania should he get elected. And he continues to remain incoherent, um, yeah, thanks to a medical catastrophe in his life. But uh, it's really tough. This is the debate season as we head towards the midterms. want to ask Virginia Cruda, our great guest uh, this segment and regular contributor here on the show, as well as a prolific uh, columnist on Daily Wire, about the debate season, especially about this Oz versus Fetterman thing. What do you think, Virginia? I mean, is are we right to say, look, we understand you have a problem. We're not we're not doing ableism here, but you have to perform. You have to be able to communicate if you're going to be a senator. Is that a fair criticism? Uh, I would say yes. You have to be able to communicate, but I would also make a couple of other comments. One. The debate is not scheduled until, what, mid-October? Yeah, coming up. So we're talking about two weeks out from the actual election. After anyone who's signed up for early voting or has done their absentee Mm. ballot probably has already voted Mm. or may have already voted. Mm. And so they're trying to sway this in, in the very end. And in this particular debate, honestly, I think that Fetterman could put a lot of the issue to bed if he would just simply release an updated letter from his doctor. Because he's right, and the people who defend him are right, when they say that there is a difference between a cognitive impairment and an auditory processing impairment. Mm -hmm. Um, You see this with um, patients who have seizures. When, you know, you're asking them a question and you can ask them later on, did you understand the question? And they will tell you that they did. But because there is a faulty connection between the two sides of the brain, they can hear the question and understand exactly what you're saying and then go to answer it and have gibberish come out. Yeah. And that's because what I, you're the, right. I'd the like. speech center and the, and, and the uh, auditory processing center are not in the same place. Right. You know, I'd, I'd like to see him just take an IQ test. Just take a, some kind of a test that, that tests skills of processing analytic thinking. And, you know, I mean, I, I think it, it would maybe be a different calculus. All that said, one of the job requirements of a senator, the most deliberative body in the right. world, is, you know, rapid fire communication and debate. So that, I think, it is a legitimate right, right. concern, right? I, I do. and But again, two weeks before the election, what's it going to change? Well, yeah, right, yeah. And so that that's the thing. And the issue that I have is that when you push for that and you demand it two weeks before the election, it it almost even if it's if if the goal is to make sure that he can perform well as a senator. Yeah. Demanding it that late in the game looks like we're just trying to make a fool of this guy on a on a big stage right before the election. Ah, Again, yeah. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference because we're we're into the season where people have already voted, mm. where people have already pretty much made up their minds. And I don't think it's going to change a whole lot. 
just like in Missouri, even if you had Eric Schmidt and Trudy Bush Valentine debate right now, I don't think a whole lot of minds would be changed by that debate. And so you see a lot of the, the unfortunate thing is because people know that they know that debates don't change a whole lot of minds unless there is a major, major catastrophe or a major admission on the debate stage. And so you see candidates who are ahead, like Eric Schmidt, or in other states, you know, the Democrat would be ahead because that's just the way they roll. Um, They don't want to debate because they don't want to put themselves at risk. Well, yeah, that tells you something. When someone dodges a debate, that tells me that uh, they're they're going to lose that debate. They don't want to engage. Well, no, it doesn't always. To me, it doesn't always tell me you're going to lose the debate. It, it it also tells me that you see the debate as a potential gotcha situation. You you believe your opponent might try to use it as one. And you can be absolutely right and be a good debater and have a situation that blows up in your face. Well, that's that true. Looks, that's looks, true. That reflects poorly at the last minute. Yeah. So, I mean, there are, there are plenty of... Uh, plenty of situations where where that has happened. Um, well, Hersher Walker and and Warnock went at it last night, and uh, I don't. Yeah. I'm not going to waste our time with sound, but I mean, it, it got pretty personal by reports. And uh, that's yeah. another one where you know, I, I, we were talking about Kanye West earlier, and yeah. what a, what a flawed conservative he is because of his rambling and his just crazy and lately the anti-Semitic thing, but. Um, why I mean, these guys that we have to apologize for their personal behavior? It's it makes it tough to be a conservative supporting them. I will say this about the Warnock and uh, Walker situation: um, it is one thing to be an individual person. Now, keep in mind that Walker, the uh, the woman who alleges he paid for an abortion for her or encouraged her to get an abortion. This is a woman that he had lived with for a long period of time, was still in a committed relationship with, apparently. Mm -hmm. And um, if I'm not mistaken, she wanted the abortion as well. And when you are the guy in a a long-term relationship with this woman, and that's what she wants, that's going to weigh into your decision and your what, what you decide to do ultimately as well. So I'm not saying it's her fault. I'm not saying that he should have done it. What I am saying is that it's a very different situation for him to use his own personal money to pay for an abortion for a woman he personally knows than to advocate for abortion up to birth at taxpayer expense mm. for any woman in the state. Mm. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I, okay. to, to me, I, you know, I get it. And I get it. And the, the argument is basically, I will not let Herschel Walker's decision lead to the deaths of more and more and more babies, because that's what you're doing. If you're saying, mm-hmm. okay, I can't vote for him. And realistically, you know, might have a few people who leave the race blank, but how many um, Brian Kemp, Raphael Warnock voters do you think there are? <laughs> yeah, Real, well, realistically, yeah, those, and it looks yeah. like Kemp is doing very well against Stacey Abrams. So, you know, unless you have people who are just going to vote for Warnock and not for anybody, you know, right. I don't see a whole lot of that. Um, I will say this, though. 
um, this also occurred in what, 2009. Mm-hmm. And my issue with the, with the media, with the Democrat activists, there is no sin, no matter how old that a Republican can be redeemed from committing. Mm-hmm. We're talking about something that happened 13 years ago. And we are measuring Herschel Walker now and his position now against one thing he did 13 years No, you're absolutely years. right. No, I, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, right, yeah, it's the old if thing. If you look at the debate, if you look at the debate, Warnock said last night about, about abortion, that he was being very snarky about it. And he said, um, well, you know, I, I think with the woman and the doctor in her room, it's crowded enough. And Walker shot back. There's a baby in that room, too. Oh, yeah, that was good. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I did okay. read that. I didn't see it. Okay. Well, you're right, Virginia, and uh, I hope folks will catch more of uh, what we didn't get to talk about, but what you wrote about, about the way The mm-hmm. View has uh, really just gone after Herschel Walker on the one hand, defended Fetterman yeah. on the other. It's indefensible. And yeah. uh, and about Joe Biden's latest lie about how his son, Bo, died in Iraq. Oh, he's tried to maintain it had to do with uh, b- b- burn pit poisoning, and you know that was the brain cancer. we got to run, but always great talking to you great analysis thanks for bringing some sensibility to it because the left is going crazy on herschel not much about warnock yep. and him attacking his wife that's another thing virginia thanks or, as always know, appreciate it people for 28 dollars. <laughs> you're right talk to you later thanks so much all right okay bye-bye there she is virginia cruda always great to talk with her uh when we come back uh boy top of the hour it's jimmy fela you won't want to miss that randy tobler with you on 1019 news talk stl like that freedom Ooh, I bet you like your